Welcome, friends. It's August 21st, and this is the One-Year Bible Tour Guide. How encouraging it is to be reading through the Bible consistently and seeing how it provides a unifying frame of reference that puts our focus where it belongs, on the glory of God as it is made known in and through Christ Jesus our Lord. My name is David McAdam, pastor and Bible teacher at New Life Community Church in Concord, Massachusetts, and I have the joy of conducting this tour as day by day we are making progress through all 66 books of the Bible. Our goal is to get you into a healthy regimen of a daily intake of God's Word as we read it, hear it, study it, meditate upon it, and memorize what is helpful for maintaining a walk with the Lord. Today we start our 18th book of the Old Testament, the book of Job, and continue with Paul's first letter to the Corinthians in the New Testament. Although we do not know for certain, it is believed that the events recorded in the book of Job took place during the time of the patriarchs, and if it were written at that time, it would be the oldest book of the Bible. The long life of Job, who reportedly lived 140 more years after his calamities, corresponds with the longer lifespans of that patriarchal period. For example, Abraham lived 175 years, This is considerably longer than the 120 years of Moses' era or the average threescore and ten. Job's wealth was measured in livestock rather than property or riches, which is similar to the age of the patriarchs. The Sabaeans and the Chaldeans referred to in the first chapter of the book of Job were nomads in the period of the patriarchs, but not in later years. In Job chapter 42 verse 15, Job gave his daughters inheritance among their brothers, This was not possible later under the Mosaic law, if the brothers were still living, according to Numbers chapter 27, verse 8. And there is no reference at all to Mosaic institutions such as the priesthood, the tabernacles, the feast days, and Mosaic law. Therefore, it is likely that these events took place prior to the Mosaic period. Job is a historical figure who is referred to elsewhere in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Lord declares to the prophet Ezekiel that Job was a righteous man in Ezekiel chapter 14 verse 20. In the New Testament, in the epistle of James, Job is noted for his patient endurance in James chapter 5 verse 11. The book consists of a prologue, a dialogue, and an epilogue in which we are presented with a subject for which there are no easy answers, the problem of pain and suffering. Job and his friends wrestle with this problem, but fail to successfully come to a conclusion. It is not until God himself speaks at the end of the book that we are brought to the place where we must humble ourselves before his self-revelation as a good God who stands above and beyond our finite understanding. You have heard the expression, the patience of Job. Well, I believe that it is necessary to be patient as we read the book of Job. Yes, we need to hear out the perspectives of Job and his friends, but we must recognize their perspectives as being inadequate and appeal to God, making himself known to us in his merciful kindness in the end. So let's get started on today's excursion and go to the prologue of the book of Job. Job chapter 1, and I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Job's Character and Wealth There was a man in the land of Uz, whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed seven thousand sheep, three thousand camels, five hundred yoke of oxen, and five hundred female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. 
his sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. Satan allowed to test Job. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth, and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand, only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Satan takes Job's property and children. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them, and the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people, and they are dead, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Satan attacks Job's health. Chapter 2 Again there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth, and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, who fears God and turns away from evil? He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, all that a man has he will give for his life. 
but stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand, only spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God, and shall we not receive evil? And all this Job did not sin with his lips. Job's Three Friends Now when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him, they came each from his own place, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite. And they made an appointment together to come to show him sympathy and comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. And they raised their voices and wept, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads towards heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. Job Laments His Birth Chapter 3 After this Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. And Job said, Let the day perish on which I was born, and the night that said, A man is conceived. Let that day be darkness. May God above not seek it, nor light shine upon it. Let gloom and deep darkness claim it. Let clouds dwell upon it. Let the blackness of the day terrify it. That night let thick darkness seize it. Let it not rejoice among the days of the year. Let it not come into the number of the months. Behold, let that night be barren. Let no joyful cry enter it. Let those curse it who curse the day, who are ready to rouse up Leviathan. Let the stars of its dawn be dark. Let it hope for light, but have none, nor see the eyelids of the morning, because it did not shut the doors of my mother's womb, nor hide trouble from my eyes. Why did I not die at birth, come out from the womb, and expire? Why did the knees receive me? Or why the breast that I should nurse? For then I would have lain down and been quiet. I would have slept. Then I would have been at rest with kings and counselors of the earth who rebuilt ruins for themselves, or with princes who had gold, who filled their houses with silver. Or why was I not as a hidden stillborn child, as infants who never see the light? There the wicked cease from troubling, and there the weary are at rest. There the prisoners are at ease together, they hear not the voice of the taskmaster. The small and the great are there, and the slave is free from his master. Why is light given to him who is in misery, and life to the bitter in soul, who long for death but it comes not, and dig for it more than for hidden treasures, who rejoice exceedingly and are glad when they find the grave? Why is light given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in? For my sighing comes instead of my bread, and my groanings are poured out like water. For the thing that I fear comes upon me, and what I dread befalls me. I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest, but trouble comes. 
And this is the end of our reading of today's portion from the Old Testament, the Book of Job. Oswald Chambers gave a series of talks on the Book of Job titled, Baffled to Fight Better. Trials can be baffling, but as we will see in this book, they can fortify our faith with a greater understanding of who God is. In reading these opening chapters, we have a privilege that Job did not have. Job did not have the background information that we read in the prologue of this book. He did not know what was going on behind the scenes in the heavenly realms. When we read chapter 1, verses 6-12, through 12, and chapter 2, verses 1-7, through 7, we learn that God had Job's best interests at heart. At the same time, he was making Job a spectacle to principalities and powers. Job was caught up in what appeared to be, at face value, a series of random unexpected calamities. He suddenly lost his wealth, property, children, health, and the companionship of his own wife. Little did he know at the time that God was actively repudiating Satan's charge that Job worshipped the Lord only because he was being blessed materially, relationally, physically, intellectually, and emotionally. Job did not know of Satan's behind-the-scenes involvement. Spoiler alert, he does not find out the reason by the end of the book but he does make some more important discoveries. He gets to know that God is both good and great. He learns that even in times of mind-boggling suffering, God in his wisdom is working all things together for the good of those who love him and are the called, according to his purpose. The early chapters describe some dark days in Job's life. Not only does he bear the weight of personal sorrow at the loss of so much in his life, but his friends also provide no real comfort. At first, they are speechless in their attempt to console him. For seven days and nights, they sit with him, with no one speaking a word, as they beheld Job in such pain and sorrow. Warren Wearsby says that these truths arise in the book of Job. Number one, God is sovereign in all things. Satan can do nothing to God's people without God's permission. Number two, Satan has access to God's throne in heaven. Thanks to John Milton's Paradise Lost, Many people have the mistaken idea that Satan is ruling this world from hell. Better to reign in hell than serve in heaven. But Satan will not be cast into the lake of fire until a time just before the final judgment in Revelation chapter 20 verses 10 and following. Today he is free to go about on the earth in Job chapter 1 verse 7, in 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 8, and can even go into God's presence in heaven. Number three, God found no fault in Job but Satan did. The word Satan means adversary, one who opposes the law. This is a courtroom scene, and God and Satan each deliver different verdicts about Job. As you study this book, keep in mind that God said, not guilty, in chapter 1, verse 8, chapter 2, verse 3, and chapter 42, verse 7. There was nothing in Job's life that compelled God to cause him to suffer, but Satan said, guilty because he is the accuser of God's people and finds nothing good in them. In Zechariah chapter 3 and Revelation chapter 12 verse 10. Number 4. Satan can touch God's people only with God's permission, and God uses it for his good and his glory. God is at work in our lives to make us more like Jesus Christ, and he can even use the attacks of the devil to perfect us. End quote from Warren Wearsby's Old Testament Bible Exposition Commentary, Wisdom and Poetry. Satan, in making his accusation against Job, was really making an attack on God. He was implying that God gives special favors to people to cause them to worship him. 
He charges that the Lord's worshipers give reverence only because of the blessings they experience and not because they love him for who he is. Job's three older friends, Eliphaz, the Temanite, the eldest, Bildad, the Shuhite, the second eldest, and the younger, Zophar, the Namathite, believe that Job was suffering because he had sinned. Job's experience was something like bad karma. All three friends falsely believed that if Job was righteous, nothing evil would happen to him. These men were sincere and religious, but had little understanding of God's greater purposes. A self-righteous younger man, Elihu, will say rather glibly that God was using these trials to make Job a better man. The truth is that even though we do sin and trials do shape our character, these were not the reasons for Job's suffering. And even though we read that what was taking place in the heavenlies when Satan was accusing Job of being an expedient worshiper, we cannot presume to know all the reasons why God permitted these events to take place. God is true to his good character and has good reasons for all that he does, but the bottom line is that God is God. Now let's move on to our next stop in our Bible reading tour to the New Testament epistle of Paul, his first letter to the Corinthians. And we start with chapter 14, verse 1, and we read through to verse 17. Prophecy and Tongues Chapter 14 Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets, so that the church may be built up. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you, unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? If even lifeless instruments, such as the flute or the harp, do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves. If with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say Amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. And this concludes our reading from today's portion from the New Testament, Paul's letter to the Corinthians. Now let's recap and reflect. In this chapter, Paul continues to address the carnal behavior exhibited in the lives of church members in Corinth. Their selfish preoccupations were manifested in the exercise of spiritual gifts when they gathered together. 
Have you realized that you can be carnal in both your attitude and actions in spiritual matters and ministry? We all recognize that we can say the right things in the wrong way and at the wrong time. Pride, confusion, and outright deception can sabotage the benefit of the ministries of the members of the body of Christ as they attempt to exercise their spiritual gifts. The Corinthian church members used spiritual gifts as a means of authenticating the worth of their ministries and exalting their egos. They were losing sight that the gifts are all God-given and for the common good. They are enablements given by the Holy Spirit for the purpose of building up the body of Christ. The Corinthians were not exercising their spiritual gifts in submission to the Holy Spirit or their brothers and sisters in Christ. Their subjective proclivity to feelings and experiences was a hangover from their pagan days when they were led astray in the service of mute idols. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 2, we see this today as Christians are given to experiences of raised endorphin levels, some experiencing the same demonic manifestations that appear in kundalini yoga of Hinduism. Paul admonishes the Corinthians to use their gifts in a more excellent way. He then describes the character of Christ in what is often called the love chapter in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. If your spiritual gifts hinder the expression of who Christ is as the personification of love as it is defined in this chapter, you are prostituting their purpose. You are as useless and annoying as a clanging gong or cymbal. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14, Paul speaks from his own experience and teaches on the proper use of the gifts. He gives the Corinthians some ground rules for their meetings. He expected them to use their gifts in submission to the headship of Christ for the glory of God and the good of others. The Corinthian church was giving a disproportionate amount of attention to the gift of speaking in languages unknown to the speaker. Paul speaks of the primacy of prophecy, speaking forth the word of God in ways that can be understood by all in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 1-5 through and verse 19. Believers should know the Word, speak the Word, and live the Word. To prophesy in the truest sense is to speak forth the Word of God in the power of the Holy Spirit. The prophets were those who gave us the Holy Scriptures in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, and those who were appointed to communicate the mind of God as oracles prior to the completion of the Bible. The purpose of prophecy is to glorify the Word, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy in Revelation chapter 19, verse 10. When we speak of prophecy today, we are making a distinction between the activity of the prophets of the Old Testament and the apostles and prophets who are appointed to give us the written word of God in the Bible and the activity of those who minister the word of God today. Prophecy today is the communication of God's truth for the purpose of stirring up, that's exhortation, building up, that's edification, and cheering up, that's encouragement in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 3. We need to use our gifts in the way that is most profitable for the building up of the body of Christ. If a person at this time in Corinth had the gift of speaking in a language that had no meaning to them personally, they may be feeling chuffed that they have a spiritual enablement in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 4, but Paul says it is as useless as speaking into the air in verses 6 through 12, unless there is one to interpret in chapter 14, verse 13. Paul makes it clear that the tongue here is not referring to gibberish, but language that has syntax and meaning, in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 10. Paul advocates that we minister with both our spirits and our minds, in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 15, and seek to build up the body of Christ with revelation, knowledge, 
teaching, prophetic exhortation, edification, and consolation in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 3 and verse 6. Now we move on to the Bible's songbook, the book of Psalms, for our next stop on our Bible tour, Psalm 37, verses 12 through 29. The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him, but the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he sees that his day is coming. The wicked draw the sword and bend their bows to bring down the poor and needy, to slay those whose way is upright. Their sword shall enter their own heart, and their bows shall be broken. Better is the little that the righteous has than the abundance of many wicked. For the arms of the wicked shall be broken, but the Lord upholds the righteous. The Lord knows the days of the blameless, and their heritage will remain forever. They are not put to shame in evil times. In the days of famine they have abundance. But the wicked will perish. The enemies of the Lord are like the glory of the pastures. They vanish. Like smoke they vanish away. The wicked borrows, but does not pay back. But the righteous is generous and gives. For those blessed by the Lord shall inherit the land. But those cursed by him shall be cut off. The steps of a man are established by the Lord when he delights in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be cast headlong, for the Lord upholds his hand. I have been young, and now am old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. He is ever lending generously, and his children become a blessing. Turn away from evil and do good, so shall you dwell forever. For the Lord loves justice, he will not forsake his saints. They are preserved forever, but the children of the wicked shall be cut off. The righteous shall inherit the land and dwell upon it forever. The psalmist continues in this acrostic poem to contrast the righteous, those in the right with God through faith in his word, and the wicked, that is the unbeliever. Believers rooted in the word have this promise, in the day of disaster they will not wither. The wicked borrows and does not pay back, but the righteous is gracious and gives. In verse 21, this is the testimony of the mature saint. I have been young, and now I am old. Yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his descendants begging bread. In verse 25, for the Lord loves justice and does not forsake his godly ones. They are preserved forever, but the descendants of the wicked will be cut off. The righteous will inherit the land and dwell in it forever, in verses 28 through 29. For our final stop in our Bible tour today, we go to the book of Proverbs, the Bible's treasure chest of wisdom, chapter 21, verses 25 and 26. The desire of the sluggard kills him, for his hands refuse to labor. All day long he craves and craves, but the righteous gives and does not hold back. What kind of worker are you? What kind of giver are you? The Holy Spirit inspires us to be diligent rather than lazy, generous rather than stingy. Now let's pray. Lord, you are to be worshipped for who you are and not just for what you do. You are God and there is no other. We give you our vote of confidence that you have our best interests at heart. You can be trusted even when we are baffled by our lack of understanding. We are grateful for the spiritual intelligence given to us in your word. We know that you are at work behind the scenes and have given us the ability to stand confidently in the victory you have given to us in Christ. 
We are grateful for the ministry of your word and the demonstration of your life in the members of the body of Christ. Thank you for those who continually stir us up, cheer us up, and build up the community of faith in the local church. We ask that the manifestation of your presence in our world will be increasingly recognized and that the power of the gospel will transform lives today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, congratulations on making your way into the 18th book of the Old Testament. For those of you who have been with us from January 1st, how wonderful it is to be taking in the scope of God's counsel And I'm sure that we'll find it very enlightening to have the curtains pulled back and see how God is acting behind the scenes, even during a time of difficulty, the trial and tribulations of God's servant Job. I'm sure that there are many profitable lessons that await us. Thank you for joining with me on this journey, and God willing, we'll be together tomorrow as we make our way further into the book of Job and Paul's letter to the Corinthians and continue to resonate with the heart cries of the book of Psalms and partake of the wisdom of the book of Proverbs. If you would like a written copy of our commentary, you can go to our website, newlife.org, where it's freely available and can be received as a daily email. If you would like to know more about New Life Community Church and its ministries and how you can support us, you can go to our website, newlife.org. I want to thank you for all your prayers and encouragement. May the Lord use all of our faith initiatives to bring glory to his name. So until next time, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And all that is available to you in Christ Jesus, who has made peace for us and is our peace. Shalom. Shalom.